Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, how are you? This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing okay out there. I'm doing all right. It's August. It's the dog days of summer. It's hot. There are mosquitoes. There are fires. There are podcasts. My guest today is Sam Cohen. She is the author of a story collection called Sarah Land out there now from Grand Central Publishing. This was another one of these books that I read on my summer vacation and thoroughly enjoyed. It is a collection of stories featuring protagonists named Sarah. Uh, I suppose you could uh, categorize this as queer fiction, an exploration of identity, an exploration of of self, what it means to be a self, what it means to identify in certain ways. These stories are interesting in the way that they all hold together because they are wildly different in a lot of uh, senses, which makes the achievement to me that much more impressive. Again, the book is called Sarah Land. The new story collection by Sam Cohen, that conversation is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, publisher of Paris is a Party, Paris is a Ghost, the debut novel by David Hoon Kim. You might have heard of David. His fiction has appeared in The New Yorker. And his debut, Paris is a Party, Paris is a Ghost, plunges us more deeply beneath the surface of things to the displacement, exile, grief, and desire that hide in plain sight. Kelly Link, author of Get in Trouble, describes this book as, quote, the kind of book that holds you in a dream as you read it, intricate and frictionless and always marvelous. And David Kim of the New York Times describes the book as, quote, an attempt to escape our own chaos through the chaos of others. Paris is a Party, Paris is a Ghost, the debut novel from David Hoon Kim, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. A quick reminder that the Other People podcast 
now has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? All episodes, more than 700 and counting, are now available to you on YouTube for free. It's all there. Go subscribe to the Other People Podcast YouTube channel. It's free. Also, if I may uh, make a small request, if you like this show and you listen regularly, I hope you'll consider rating and reviewing the podcast over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitch or wherever you listen. Rate it and review it. It helps the show find new listeners when you do that. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. My guest today, once again, is Sam Cohen. Her new story collection, Sarah Land, is out there right now from Grand Central Publishing. It was delightful to meet her and speak with her about this excellent debut collection, which uh, contains so much in its pages. Beautifully written, whip-smart, vivid, almost psychedelically vivid at some times. It's everything you want from... uh, Great fiction. So I'm pleased to meet Sam at this moment as her career gets underway, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Here she is, folks. This is Sam Cohen, and her book, One More Time, is called Sarah Land. I wrote the story, All the Teenage Sarahs, first, and that story came out of a prompt that came from my friend who's also a writer, Nikki Darling, who had the idea to have four writers write um, the four horse girls of the apocalypse. And she assigned me to the name Sarah and told me that my horse girl would be 12. And I've never been a horse girl. I didn't know anything about horse girls. I didn't fully understand the concept of horse girls of the apocalypse. And so I wrote this story um, about someone named Sarah where sort of the idea of being Sarah and the idea of being 12 and the idea of maybe wanting to be a horse girl, but not knowing what that was, um, were just really exploded and made extremely hyperbolic. So she has an age disorder where she's always 12 and keeps moving through different parts of life, but stays 12 and she keeps morphing into different Sarah's from pop culture. Um, And I sort of forgot about that story for a while. And later I was going through 
a breakup and made that breakup this sort of hyperbolic piece of fiction too, um, where I named the characters Tegan and Sarah um, because there is sort of a twin motif. The narrator believes that the um, that her partner is kind of her twin in a way, and they also sing Tegan and Sarah at karaoke. And so um, I, I found, I kind of like, this happens to me a lot, but I kind of found the all the teenage Sarah's um, story just like in my back files. Um, I think before we went on air, I was telling you that I'm just not very good with technology and my computer or storing things. And so it just kind of appeared and I was like, wow, this is a cool story. And then also it feels similar in some ways to the breakup story, which became exorcism in the book. Um, Wait, exorcism or eating my twin. Yeah. Is the name of the story. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was a problem at first that both narrators were named Sarah. Um, and because the Sarah and all the teenage Sarahs was always morphing into pop cultural Sarahs and because, um, the, the kind of Tegan and Sarah concept was so central to exorcism or eating my twin. Um, I felt like I couldn't change either of their names and I thought like, that will be weird maybe if I have a story collection where there are two protagonists named Sarah. But then I thought, well, what if I sort of just use the name Sarah as a constraint and see how many different stories I can generate from the name Sarah? Um, And so I just kind of um, did that. And I guess from the moment that I decided to do that, I was thinking about it as a book. It's interesting how you kind of back into these things because, it, you know, you read the book and it can seem like, oh, this is the conceit from the start. She had this like vision for this collection. But, you know, I've had this conversation or a similar conversation with other authors on this show in the past. And almost always, it's a lot more of a circuitous path and it's a lot more accidental almost than than one might think when they're reading like the finished product after all the time and energy and thought has been put into it. Uh, but it's a great idea. And I guess I'm curious to know from your perspective what Sarah em, uh, is emblematic of. Like, what is, the, what is the Sarah signifier? It's, you know, yes, it's a generational name, but is there, are there other aspects of identity that are embedded into it as a choice? Well, like I said, the name Sarah sort of happened to me accidentally. Um because the name was first assigned from my friend Nikki um, for the all the teenage Sarahs story or the story that ended up being all the teenage Sarahs. Um, and then, you know, Tegan and Sarah is a very sort of specific, um, specific Sarah too. Um, And so I didn't necessarily have a particular vision of a particular kind of person when I chose that name. It felt like the name kind of um, happened to me, like I said. But also, I kind of also thought back to when I first started writing fiction and my sort of... um, The character that was always kind of a stand-in for me was always named Sarah. Um because I think I was a really shy younger person and I would say my name's Sam kind of quietly and maybe 
somehow multisyllabically and kind of trail off. <laughs> and um, I would say my name is Sam and people would be like, Sarah, um, all the time. So I was always sort of mistaken for a Sarah. Um, Did you know a lot of Sarahs growing up? Yeah, I I think that I must have because that's one of those names growing up in the 80s that a lot of people had. But I also, I can think of a handful of Sarahs, but I can't think of a lot of childhood Sarahs that I have um, really strong that come to memory really quickly. But I feel like I got what I wanted. You would say your name slowly and shyly and people would mistake you for a Sarah. So there is some, there's some connectivity there, like deep connectivity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I feel connected to that name in that way. Um, and I mean, I was thinking back recently to sort of the first short story that I wrote and I, where I kind of was thinking like, yeah, I'm like getting it as a fiction writer, like so many years ago. And it was this conversation that was happening between other people. And then the narrator says, they're talking about me. I'm Sarah. Um, and that story is obviously not, and obviously, I guess, but that story is not in the book or I don't even know where it is. But um, yeah, I think the name Sarah has been with me for a long time because of that similarity to my name. And, and this book is a, uh, and correct me if I, you know, if you disagree, but it's a deconstruction in a way of identity, um, along various like, uh, vectors. It's like identity, like gender identity, sexual identity, um, spiritual or religious identity. Am I missing something or am I misapprehending something? No, I think that, yeah, I think all of that is true. And I mean, I think it's also, I think it's about just like identity itself, period, like how weird it is to be just a singular person or um, to be expected to be consistent. And um I don't know. I think that's something that I'm at least sort of obsessed with is that there's this sort of like collection of stuff that is supposed to sort of have a single name and a single appearance and remain the same in some way, remain static in some way. Um, and that actually like it's always shifting so much with everything that it comes into contact with, whether that is texts or food or drugs or other people. Um, and so, yeah, I guess just sort of um, like the solidity of identity itself. I think, no, I, this is a, a, a subject of enormous fascination to me. I think it's a really radical idea for human beings to contemplate, uh, at least at this stage, but a necessary one, I would argue. And I think that the fluidity of identity, the slipperiness of it, and ultimately its immaterial nature are things that are both really hard to comprehend and also really scary for a lot of people. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. And 
I think that if we were to honestly grapple with it and <laughs> I, realize I'm, I feel like I might be getting intense here, but I really believe this sincerely. I think if we were to honestly grapple with it on a daily basis, it would really, really significantly change the way we deal in the world. Like, I feel like the notion that we have of ourselves, like you're Sam and I'm Brad, you're a girl and I'm a boy or whatever, you know, how, whatever signifiers we put on ourselves. Um, we're both from the Midwest. I'm this, I'm that it's all bullshit ultimately, or at least it's not like deeply true. Like when you really start to dig around inside anybody's identity, it comes apart. It's not inherent to itself. Like, um, like an iPhone, if I hold my phone in my hand, there's no iPhone in here. If you take the silicon out of this, then there's no iPhone. If you take the plastic out of it, there's no iPhone. But what is silicon? Well, that's sand. You know, like, there, there's just no essential thing that is an iPhone, just like there's no essential thing that is Sam or Brad. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, there's all of these, like, the artist Jennifer Moon calls them gut fairies. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She's an L.A. artist. Um, but it's just like the the microbes that live in your in your stomach that we're learning sort of control so much of who we are and are like, I don't know the percentage, but it's like 75% of us or something isn't us. It's these other uh, microscopic creatures living inside of us. Right, right. And, and we just don't think about that. We live inside the illusion that we are solid and fixed. And what I find interesting, and you see a lot of attention around um, sexuality and gender identity, especially in modern culture, like so much of the blowback and the anger and hatred comes from people, I think, who are made to feel very uncomfortable by the idea that this stuff is not fixed. Uh, mm. And I think in general, as part of the human condition, it's a little bit uncomfortable to learn that, uh, you know, we're not who we think we are, <laughs> you know, that it's a lot weirder than we like to believe, I think, in our ordinary day to day. This isn't to say that, like, the ordinary day to day shouldn't or, or you know, shouldn't exist. Like, there sort of has to be both of these levels operating. Like, you do have to have, like, a driver's license and, you know, the, the normal stuff of life has to exist. But on a deeper plane, we are uh, really ephemeral and ultimately, like, kind of immaterial. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think because you brought up, you know, gender and sexuality, I think like being as being part of the book too, like, I think that I think queerness can sort of help that become clear at a young age because there's a real feeling of um, not like I'm not who or I think you said I'm not who I think I am or something, but I think that being a queer kid, it's like, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not who all of you think I am. Like somehow I don't really know what it is, but somehow everyone around me is sort of like deeply misunderstanding like the basic stuff of what I am. Um, and so there's a sort of having to leave to go find people who are capable of seeing that or even figuring out what it is, which I think, you know, yeah, is some of the journey in the book, but then it's like, as 
you're sort of going through that journey of finding um finding that or finding those people there yeah there's all kinds of other stuff that kind of blows apart and blows open that makes sense to me that it would be less of a journey for somebody who is queer who's gone through that kind of alienating process of being a childhood and having these expectations <laughs> placed on you that are at odds with who you're who you are in your deepest self you know it wouldn't maybe the the slipperiness of identity wouldn't be nearly as hard to comprehend for somebody who had been through that experience as a child like that. I think there's a real logic to that. And, you know, I have to confess it's a learning process for me. Like, I don't mean to wag a finger at people who are struggling with, um, you know, who would struggle with this sort of stuff. Cause it is pretty hard, you know, the, it's a new way of apprehending reality and things are changing fast and in many cases for the better. But, um, you know, sometimes I have to stop myself and I'll be talking to my kids about like gender and I'll say something that's like really binary and fixed, you know, just in like casual language. And I'll have to be like, ah, you know, like, no, that actually doesn't really square. You know, I'm not giving them good information, but I'm just relying on this sort of old, pattern of, of communication that I kind of grew up with and was, was embedded into me. So, you know, it's a process and, um, I think it's, it's got a lot of different aspects. How old are your kids? Are they old enough that they're sort of calling you out or are you, um, more catching yourself cause you're giving language to them? Uh, they're 11 and six. Uh, so my daughter is getting to the point where she, I mean, she corrects me sometimes. I think the next, like, like going forward, we're, we're really tipping into where she's going to start really correcting me, mm -hmm. uh, once she gets into like junior high and stuff. But, you know, for them, it's less of a leap. I think they're, you know, they're being raised in Los Angeles. I was raised in like a cloistered Midwestern suburb, not dissimilar from the one that you probably grew up in. Um, and, uh, I think that has an impact as well. You know, but it's also times have changed and, you know, people's ideas and attitudes have developed in, in many ways uh, for the better, you know. And so it's just a matter of like catching up to some extent and then also learn like there's just a learning curve for me that I have, I've had to go through and that I continue to have to go through like with so many things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, that's what I was thinking, is it's, like, sort of what's obvious to, like, I don't know, when you said that you you don't judge people for sort of not getting certain things right away, um, I also try not to because I, I feel aware that it's, like, what feels obvious to some of us because of our lived experience feels completely at odds with the reality of other people but it does seem like kids like what's obvious to kids now is really different than what was obvious to kids in the 80s um uh, no doubt no doubt and i think too like when i what i was i think what i was mostly referring to when i was talking about people not grabbing it was the really like deep philosophical notion of like no self <laughs> Like mm. when you get to that place, like that's something that there's just a lot of space between 
ordinary reality and how we go about our daily lives and like deep, deep reality, which is that I, I tend to believe there's no self. I think that's like the logic of it squares with me when I really sit around pondering it. But this other stuff, you know, when it comes to identity um, and the diversity of people uh, around us, you know, like that part of it too, you know, I was acknowledging having to do some learning around, especially in recent years, you know, like I feel like these last like five to 10 years have been an accelerated learning curve for me. And I don't know where that places me on the continuum, but I tend to think that I'm pro I'm probably in pretty good company. A lot of people I think have been learning a lot and a lot has shifted and changed in a relatively short amount of time, um, which is good. But there, there's also like the part of me that's like, damn, like I, I feel slow. Like I should have gotten this sooner or, you know, it's like feeling, feeling an awareness of your blind spots is never like a super comfortable experience. Well, I think because sort of identity in the self is kind of a fiction, um, that the stories that we're telling and the language we're giving to identity is always in flux. And so it's like the kids who are teens now have a completely different set of, um, I don't know, I think language for understanding gender and sexuality, narratives for what these things mean um, than I do, or that, you know, I think most people of my generation came up with. So, um, and like, sometimes I, you know, sometimes it's hard to not say like, you know, like this is, these terms are context dependent or like we have the same, we have the same identities with different language or right. Like that, that these things are all sort of a fiction. Um, but I don't know. That's interesting. Like, I don't know if the self is completely non-existent, but just that it's, it is so much composed of, what's around of the language that's around of the stories that's around of the people. Um, but it can't exist. It, it like can't exist. Putting... I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm just yeah. like, like everything is a composite. Yeah. Human beings are a right. composite. I'm food and water and air and my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents. Like they're all embedded in me. I am sunlight. Yeah. I am starlight. If you take the sunlight out of me, I vanish. There's no Brad. There's no essence that is me. And you're also like pollutants. And, yeah, yes. Um, A lot of those. Know, <laughs> um, sitcoms or I don't know what you've watched, you know, but like whatever you're sort of putting in. So, I mean, I think that that's sort of what I think that's sort of what the book is grappling with for me is just like all like that you're all of this stuff and some of it is this really beautiful stuff like you're you're made of the earth and the land um and some of it is these you know patriarchal white supremacist narratives that are sort of stuck in um in all of us um but and that we just sort of have to kind of keep existing from that place. And also, I don't know, I felt like during the pandemic, I was so um, aware of what was coming in because it was so much less and there was so much there was so much less contact with other people. Um, everything could feel extremely intentional 
and I don't know. I I I felt like by the end, and I mean this this obviously um, was possible because of a lot of privilege too. But I felt like by the end of the pandemic, like I felt like just sort of like glowing and um and integrated and whole in this way I had never felt before because I had had so much control about like over I guess like what I was eating what I was reading um like I was never like running between places and having to go through a drive-through um I was never having to like meet up with people who annoy me you know (laughs) and um and it now that things have started to speed up, that has felt like it's unraveled so quickly. And I feel right now like very aware of like the ways that who I am changes because of what's coming in. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, I should also say too, that I don't know if the pandemic is over, unfortunately. Um, but, but for a while things were like speeding up a lot. And I, I feel still like things, I mean, like I have to teach in person, things have I don't know. There are a lot more, I think, in-person obligations, even though the pandemic is not over. Yeah. And I relate, and I think so many writerly people, especially, but not just writerly people, relate to this idea that there were, especially if you were in a position of privilege and didn't have to be out on the front lines or working in a grocery store. I mean, I don't, you know, you can't talk about this stuff without acknowledging that privilege. Mm -hmm. But if you were working from home and did suddenly find yourself with more control over your time. And, and you know what I said, writerly people, but this could imply to investment bankers. You know, I read, uh, pieces on this in like the newspaper online or whatever throughout the pandemic where people were suddenly having these epiphanies like, Oh my God, like I'm so much happier. Like I, I don't have to get up at five and be a crazy person, you know, racing back and forth from the gym. I could just work out at home and stroll to my computer at, you know, 10 in the morning and I don't know, it just made people's lives better in some ways. And it just gave them, I think, an opportunity to pause and to get out of the routine that they had been, you know, um, enmeshed with for a long, long time. And I, I think too, like maybe temperamentally writers were better predisposed to pandemic life than maybe some other people. <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel mm-hmm. like it was kind of an easy slide for me, maybe too easy to be on lockdown. Yeah, same. I mean, I felt really aware that my life shifted a lot less than um, some of the other people around me. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking about like my stepmom had been working in a car dealership, like very long days like six days a week or something and at first she really didn't know what to do with her time and then started having epiphanies that life could be a different way that she actually didn't have to be um working in the way that she was working um I don't know that like I think for people like her there was a huge really profound shift in the shape of their days for me like I was home all day a lot of days anyway um were you alone a lot or do you live with somebody I live alone but I did have a small pod um so I did have I had regular contact um with a couple other people okay that's enough that's all you need Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) um 
And were you productive? Like, did you find yourself no. being creatively productive during the pandemic or less so than normal? Yeah, I mean, I guess that that was that was maybe the thing for me is that I was way less productive than normal. And I decided to just feel okay about it. I thought like, I also had a first book coming out finally after like a, a long time of trying to be a writer, you know, and so there was something about that that also gave me I think a little bit of permission to pause but it just I just sort of had this year of like what if I just kind of stopped like what if I stopped trying so hard all the time and now I'm now I'm trying to get back into it and like ramping up productivity again um but it was kind of amazing to just like be for a little while yeah and especially, I mean, the, the way that it just happened to land, you know, where you have this book done and then coming out into the world, right, as the pandemic hits. I mean, it was a natural time to sort of recharge anyway, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, we, I think we were talking before we came on. Maybe you mentioned this earlier, but I, I'm pretty sure it was before we started recording about this notion of how this collection could be potentially read as a coming of age Mm. Um, and we've, you know, you've been alluding to this and, you know, we've been talking about identity and the kind of prismatic aspects of identity and the slipperiness of identity. And, you know, if this collection were to be read as a unified piece, you know, a connected, um, collection of stories, uh, that, it, you know, almost functions as like a novel, you know what I'm saying? Like a coming of age novel. Uh, I like the approach that you took in that I think the way that we remember ourselves hues to this sort of rendering. Like it's never monolithic. It's always in pieces and it's always unreliable. At least it is for me. Like I can barely remember my life, you know, like let, I mean, <laughs> like my childhood is practically gone in my brain yeah. percentage wise. And then like, I can't even remember what happened yesterday unless I really like sat down and thought about it. So it's just interesting to me um, how we conceive of ourselves and build identities for ourselves in our minds based on the past. And this book is kind of a wild ride uh, in so many ways. Like you've got stories that are more realistic in their depictions. And then there's also stories that are like, I think fairly characterized as like magical realism or even like psychedelic realism. And again, that to me feels true. Like, <laughs> It's never just one or the other, you know, uh, it's never just one that we are. We're all these different pieces. We're all these different characters and people in our lives. I think you talked a little bit about that a minute ago, but it makes me reflect on my own life. And it's like, oh yeah, in college, I was that guy in that setting, uh, set against those people, interacting with those forces. And then I've been different. You know, you, you look at a picture of yourself when you're 12 years old. And you're like, is that, am I the same person that I was then? Like, no. Am I different? No. Like, what's the answer? <laughs> but anyway, I just think it's an honest, honest approach and like a true, a true to life approach, like a deeply true to life approach to do it this way and uh, a cool creative choice. Thank you. Uh, do you, do, like, do you, look back on the writing of the book 
and realize, I guess you realize what you did after the fact? Like, at what point did you realize that's what you were doing, you know? Yeah. So I think that when I looked at those two stories um, that were the first ones I wrote for the collection, um, all the teenage shares and exorcism are eating my twin, um, I felt like they were both about the ways that we sort of only have the stories we have to shape who we are. Um, and so there is a lot of kind of trying to mimic pop culture or um, merge with other people, people who are both in real life and from TV or music or something um, in order to kind of compose this self and so I think looking at those two stories, it already felt like the project was going to be a book of stories about stories in a way, about how we're composed of stories, about how the stories that we have kind of don't work out, but they're the only stories we have. And so I think at some point I started thinking about it as, someone who's coming of age and has like only sort of limited tools and limited um, people to grow with and to witness her. Um, And she sort of keeps being like her stories kind of keep falling apart. And so by the end of each story, it's like she just can't occupy that story anymore and has to move on to another one. I don't know if this answers your question. No, it does. It does. It makes me wonder what you were like when you were 12, just to get like, just to pick an age, you know? Yeah. And also, and because 12, I feel like is maybe the age I landed on because it's the age at which we maybe start to get a deeper sense of ourselves, like start to go through puberty, go to junior high, life gets a little bit more serious, maybe have some inkling that you might be uh, queer uh, or different or, you know, those kinds of thoughts might start to dawn. But regardless of that, I think it's also a time when we're trying to really establish a little bit of independence and sense of our own identity. And I definitely looked, you want to know something embarrassing? If I'm remembering, like, I remember looking to like the strangest places in retrospect for like what it was, what I was supposed to be like to be a guy. Like, I remember being very curious about Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Commando. (laughs) Because he was like this cool, he had a one-liner, he was like strong. And I remember wanting to get like the same kind of t-shirt that he wore in that movie because I thought it looked like, I was like, okay, this is like what cool is. And I remember my soccer coach was like, thought like Schwarzenegger and uh, Sylvester Stallone were really cool. He was like a Vietnam vet. And, you know, these are the little pieces of influence that I uh, was drawing from. But I I guess like on a similar note, I'm curious to know, like, what were you like at that age? And like, what were you um, as a young queer uh, kid who was just sorting, beginning to sort things out? Like, where were you looking and did you find any, like, where did you find solace in culture? Yeah, so... I mean, it's it's a really interesting question because I was just looking back through old this box of old pictures, um, and 
from ages like two to like I don't know probably around then like it's around puberty it's like I have this like crazy wild hair that's everywhere and I remember being very like asocial as a child um just having really my own sort of private imaginative world and sort of coming alive through like theater and dance and drawing and um make believe but I think I was considered like weirdly quiet um and I look very sort of like untamed as a kid I think and then from 12 to about 20 I look like this sort of like perfect um perfect girl child like I think that there was like the same sort of thing that kicked in around puberty that was um where you're really pushed, I think, to be in one of these two gender ideals um, in order to, like, succeed as a person, or I don't know what that is, right? Like, whatever that sort of identification with Arnold Schwarzenegger is. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I should I say, mean, wait, I, yeah. should say, I should say that I, I quickly and maybe even close to simultaneously also um, pieced myself together by watching the movie say anything i think that was what it was is that the one with lloyd oh, dobler with John Cusack and the, yeah um, so it wasn't just like muscle yeah. head like right. guns it was also like the guy holding the boom box above the, his head yeah you know? the nice guy yeah the, yeah 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 um yeah <laughs> i mean i don't mean i don't mean to diss the arnold schwarzenegger thing i mean i think it's like i remember reading magazines that listed like the 90210 characters like heights and weights and skincare products or whatever makeup and and like just wanting to emulate that um and somehow receiving like just how weird it is I think that somehow we receive all of this cultural messaging that like you just have to be this sort of perfect gender ideal and I don't know around those ages I also started straightening my hair and like really badly too so it's like these pictures of my hair that's like straight but with like a lot of like bumps in it and it's still like very big um, <laughs> and, um but very like I, I was a cheerleader I was very active in my Jewish youth group as a teenager um and was just kind of really this sort of like really striving to be this very good like all-american girl were you you hiding i mean i like i guess i want to say yes but also i think that's too easy maybe like in a way we're sort of all maybe hiding like i don't know like i guess i wonder if anyone wants to be that really like is that anyone sort of true desire or is that sort of what is what what we're told we have to be I mean and also I mean I guess the other answer is no like I genuinely loved cheerleading um I did not like football I didn't care about the games but we like stunted we took gymnastics classes I like liked wearing that little outfit to be honest (laughs) with you like I just have always like I always have like had that kind of femininity and maybe never really like fully understood the context I think as a kid of like you know understood sort of like the male gaze that like the football context made that whole look a part of because for me it was just like being on this team with these girls um 
and finding a lot of pleasure in that actually. And like, yeah, I mean, stunting is actually really, um, challenging. Um, I know one of my, one of my, one of my girlfriends growing up, she almost broke her neck. Like she could never cheerlead again. She landed wrong. Yeah. it's It's dangerous. Yeah. You talk about the male gaze and I went to high school in Indiana I was like split my childhood between Wisconsin and Indiana. The second half was in Indiana and uh, basketball is like the big thing there. And I remember being at basketball games, which are like a town event, like the whole town goes to the game kind of thing. That's the way it felt, you know, like thousands of people at a high school basketball game and the cheerleaders are out there and like the male cheerleaders are like holding the female cheerleaders up. And the girls are like holding their feet up, you know, like the, mm-hmm. and I just remember being like, I just had moments where I would like, look at them and they're basically like flashing, you know, in a, in a sense, the crowd and then just like turning and like looking at like the parent section and seeing all the dads, like looking at the cheerleaders and just being like, this is a weird dynamic. I couldn't help but notice that it just felt strange. Am I over, was I overthinking it? <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, I think that that's actually sort of part of, and and I actually think that these concerns are like in the book too, because they actually, they're like so central to me is that I actually am someone who finds a lot of pleasure in um, embodying almost sort of stereotypical um, femininity and also like cannot handle being sexualized by men like at all and so it's like within sort of queer spaces are the spaces that I have found to sort of um like do that and find a lot of uncomplicated pleasure in it um but it's like to me there is a there is like a problem because it's cheerleading is a sport right in order to like do that sport. I mean, it would, I don't know if it'd be less weird if they're wearing leotards, right? But they're essentially wearing like a leotard type of thing under a skirt. And so then like, I guess the skirt going up creates like a different dynamic of um, like something being revealed, but it's like, I don't think that those cheerleaders experience is that of flashing the crowd right it's like this kind of extreme athleticism to kind of be able to throw your leg up like that especially while balancing on someone's hand right um and i guess like it's sort of not what i see when i see cheerleaders (laughs) like i don't um but come on you don't you didn't like notice the guys in the crowd like gawking was there any of that? No, because you're hyper focused on what you're doing. I mean, I also was a bottom. I was a um I was a base. Um but um which are like, you know, we didn't have guys in high school cheerleading. Um, oh, you did. Okay. We had yeah, guys. Yeah. We I, so, some of my friends were male cheerleaders in uh, Oh, wow. In high. Indiana? Yeah. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. We there's... definitely did not have that. So, I mean, I guess I was in like the guy position. Um, but it's like the girl who's on top is like flying through the air, trying to land correctly or, you know, like hyper-focused on like holding her body to, um, be balanced and drop at the right moment and keep herself safe. So I, I don't think that anyone is really looking at or even able to notice the crowd's reactions. Um, well, I can tell you, I can tell you. Have you seen the documentary Cheer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah. 
I find cheerleading, I mean, the whole world of it, like that documentary was super fascinating. And, you know, I, you have to tip your cap to the athleticism. Like it's not easy to do. I could not do that. Um, right. But I also, like, I, like I've had conversations with my wife where I'm like, well, what, what if our daughter wants to be a cheerleader? Like, do we, like, that's okay. You know, like having a conversation around that, like, is it okay to like, put her out there? Are they sec Are you sexualizing your child, you know, by letting them go out there in this outfit? And, you know, is that a fair conversation to have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually think it's so it's so complicated and so challenging. I mean, I briefly dated someone several years ago whose kid actually she had a daughter who was I think 10 at the time. So similar to your daughter's age, I guess. Um, and it was like she was just on the brink of like wanting to, I don't know, wear sexy things and post pictures of herself and all of that. And I think it felt so much more complicated to um, my girlfriend at the time and and also to me than I was expecting because I wanted to feel so like pro wear whatever you want and express yourself and um and also so like wanting to protect this kid from adult men seeing her and sexualizing her. And it just, it feels unfair because I mean, her mom was, um, a, you know, a masculine of center person who, you know, did not enjoy, like was not really personally familiar with like the pleasures of, um, like wearing a short skirt or something. Um, but I am, and it's like, I want her to be able to have that. And I also don't want it to be in this world that we live in. And it's like, the problem is with these men and the way that, um, they've been acculturated and the way that they've been taught to sexualize young girls and that, that's not, I mean, to then turn around and kind of punish young girls for expressing themselves or to, to always sexualize femininity or to always punish femininity is its own kind of problem. And it's like the problem with cheerleading isn't the cheerleaders. Right. Right. It's the, it's the dudes. Yeah. But also like, I guess who's making the choice on the outfits like, is that, and, and maybe, you know, maybe it's totally the women and that's exactly what a woman would want to wear, but like who landed, like, I guess the question I'm, I'm wondering about is like, who decided on short skirts and sweaters for cheerleaders or whatever the basic costume is, you know, like, was that a male choice or was that a female choice? I wonder. Right. And I mean, I think that that kind of goes back to this sort of like inability to ever sort of get at the core or the essence or to know where, um, like for there to be something true and real and know that it's pure, I guess something that keeps popping into my mind um, during this conversation too is Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, um, which is this um, 1980s, I think, essay um, that is sort of um, really critiquing second wave feminism and its impetus to get to sort of this pure womanhood that is completely unconstructed by the male gaze. Right. And, um, you know, 
this type of feminism that I don't know that thinks that like women need to get back to the land, back to the true essence of their bodies, like away from femininity, which is constructed by men. Um, And this was also, you know, a very white kind of feminism, but Donna Haraway came in the eighties and said like, sorry, (laughs) Um, said like, we are only sort of, the the stories and constructs the stories and constructs that exist within us are there and we can't sort of like parse them out and separate us like that is us like all of this disparate kind of stuff all of the technology around us as well um but that there's no sort of pure self to try to return to um and that we actually have to just kind of keep acting from the desires we have from the stories that are within us and like imagine a more just future imagine like how we can all coexist together and I don't know really what this has to do with cheerleading except to say that I mean part of me wonders like what else would what else would cheerleaders wear like I guess you could do no skirt and just be wearing a leotard which would not be like less revealing um, I guess you could be wearing like a unitard, but you need like <laughs> you need a lot of flexibility of movement. Like basically you'd have to wear what gymnasts or dancers wear. Right. right. And not like the little skirt, which like, yeah, I see how there's something that's sort of like retro about the skirt and sweater look, but also that's something that can be reclaimed and owned and that can mean whatever like those girls want it to mean. I feel like the male cheerleaders should have to wear unitards. Let's let's uh let's do that. Yeah, well they're doing they're yeah. They are wearing tight clothes, right? I think so. It's like shorts. I mean, back in the day it was like shorts and like a polo shirt or something or t-shirt. Yeah, right. I guess the I guess everyone could wear like little shorts. Yeah, like some booty yeah. shorts for the men. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think they sometimes do. <laughs> uh, we so, solved it. So you, uh, like in this collection, like as we're talking about, are sort of um, telling a coming of age story. And I, I can't help but be curious about like your own coming of age, you know, um, both as an artist, but also as a person um, like coming to terms with her own identity um, sexually and otherwise, like you were raised in, what was the name of it in Michigan? Like a Detroit suburb. Um, yeah. Um, it was called Farmington Hills. Um, but it was like, yeah, I was saying before we started recording, like part of this, like broader, um, set of Jewish towns. So like West Bloomfield is the one that probably like people have heard of as like the jewish community of detroit or what is uh what's the john cusack movie what's that one set in um gross point Point. they actually um didn't allow jews which i know from jeffrey jennity's middlesex which i assume is historically accurate but there are there are actually like when i was growing up there were no jews in gross point and it's actually quite far from it's like i don't know i'm not good at geography but it's kind of on the other side Okay. I, I'm not familiar with Detroit, yeah. like geography, but Farmington mm-hmm. Hills, West Bloomfield. And you were uh, telling me that you like, as an adolescent, you sort of became to embody this ideal girl. Yeah. Like aesthetic. 
cheerleader. Um, you, you were straightening your hair. Uh, I'm imagining like dressing the part, like like other girls in your class or whatever, like the femme dress of the day. Or yeah, I mean, it was still like I don't I don't know. I guess I guess I don't know actually how I dressed. I feel like probably just like a lot of like jeans and cute t-shirts or whatever you know like <laughs> did, i think that's what we were wearing did you write on your jeans did you ever like decorate your jeans with like markers and like write the girls in I my class remember doing that okay the okay. girls in my class did that if i remember for a moment um so there's a story at the very beginning of your book which i loved called sarah land which takes mm -hmm. place in a college dormitory environment um a bunch of sarah roommates it's a bunch of Jewish girls, like kind of living in a subculture within the co college culture. Um, and kind of, I don't know, it was a very familiar world to me. And it's like a wonderfully detailed story. Like, is that the one where they're eating like the frozen broccoli and one of those microwave meals? Am I, am I getting that detail? Yeah. Right? I don't think it's even like a microwave meal. I mean, girls that I went to school with would just like put frozen you know like bags of frozen broccoli like where i think like other kids were eating ramen and stuff but like these girls would put like frozen broccoli in a microwavable bowl in their dorm room uh, and then just like douse it and do you remember that i can't believe it's not butter spray? yes yes yeah and it's like it has zero calories i think because it's like for one spray it's like a very small amount right but these girls would like pour it from uh, the container uh-huh and it's like all all chemical so yeah it was just this like chemically butter flavor on microwaved frozen but, broccoli but like a minimum calorie count and i don't know it it felt familiar to me like those kinds of details like really spoke to me and i don't know i guess i could remember them somewhere in my wiring of you know that sort of stuff being around but it's also a story about the beginnings of uh the main character the main sarah's dr sarah i think is what she goes by yeah. um coming to grips with her own sexuality and mm -hmm. I'm remembering it correctly, right? Yeah. That's a fair characterization. And mm -hmm. I found it really touching. Like, and I found it, um, relatable in the sense that I often felt for different reasons, alienated from my own tribe, uh, in college. Like I had a lot of dear friends, but I often felt like I was just like on another wavelength. Um, and I would say things and I remember many times, like I'd say something and everyone would just be like, what, like, what, what page are you on? And I'm like, oh, like I'm on, I'm on a different road here or something. And I think I related to that character for that reason. Cause that's where she is in her social life in college. Yeah. And I think the girls say something like, you're so weird. <laughs> right. And it's kind of loving, but it's also dismissive. It's like, we're not going to go to that place with you. Um, whatever, you know, whatever that thing was that you wanted to like delve into and think deeply about, like, we'll, we'll acknowledge lovingly that you're like a weirdo and we love you, but, um, yeah, I'm not going to have that conversation, which I think was a lot of my experience too. Okay. And in college. Yeah. And probably high school too. Was it, but I guess the question that I was leading to is, yeah. I mean, I guess this is sort of an obvious one cause I think it's just true for everybody to a certain extent, but maybe some more so than others is that if you were this kind of ideal girl as a high school student 
Like, first of all, where did you go off to college? Did you go? I went to UW-Madison. So very, like, again, like, football-y. Yeah. It's um, a fun town, though, yeah. right? Yeah, I love Madison, actually. And I think part of my own college journey was, like, kind of getting out of the college scene and, like, into the town scene a little bit. Uh-huh. But, it, like, I guess the question is, like, how much do you feel like you – like? What character did you become? <laughs> like if you were ideal girl in high school, did you become a new character in college? Because like I was kind of ideal boy, nerd, good grades, student government. And then there were like these deaths that I, like untimely deaths that I experienced in rapid succession in high school that I think like gave me like a spiritual crisis. And I turned like, darker <laughs> um, mm. and deeper, you know, mm -hmm. but also like disillusioned and just kind of like, I mean, I was, I don't know how much people around me would have known it, but it definitely felt like a shift. My gray, I stopped giving a shit about school. Like I was a straight A student and like by the end of high school, I could not have cared less. I didn't even want to go to college. Yeah. Um, and, and then I went off to college and became a hippie like in a minute. Like, like, I went from zero to hippie very quickly when, when I got to college. Where did you go to college? Boulder. Oh, well, yeah. there you go. You yeah. know, my, my brother Brad went to Boulder, too. Oh, my God. Okay, so <laughs> I need, we clearly need to hang out and, uh, I don't know, do some sort of purification ceremony. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I actually think I was always – I was trying to become a hippie in college, um, I think that was part of what drew me to Madison. And I think that there is something where like being kind of like a white suburban kid from the Midwest and the, I mean, I went to college in the two thousands, but like in the nineties, two thousands, whatever, like, um, hippie was like the one available subculture. So like a lot of my friends out here during the same time period were like punks and riot girls. And I think we just didn't have that in the same way. Okay. And... I have to stop you because I've had the same thought and conversation with people. And I think I have a theory of a case. Yeah. And, and I think it's because the internet, I don't know. I don't know how you might, I think you're younger than I am. I'm 75. I don't know what, what year you were. Okay. So, but jet, same general generation, you had a slightly analog childhood and then like early internet teen years. And culture did not move at nearly the speed that it moves now. And I remember noticing, like, remember like jelly shoes were like a thing in the, in the eighties and remember jams, those shorts that were like a big deal. I don't know. You might've been too young, but like these were things like I learned later, which had been like huge in LA, like five years earlier. And I also came of age in a generation that, and I'm still this way, like the music that my generation, my friend group, my grade or whatever, mostly embraced was the music of the sixties and the sixties mm -hmm. generational ethos. And it did shift after the fact, cause I have a younger sibling, like she got into hip hop and her grade was like a lot more contemporary, but we, and I think it was as the internet came online and maybe things shifted and moved more quickly. I think it has to do with the dissemination of information is what I'm getting at. And I think like, if you were raised in the Midwest, 
I didn't know what a riot girl was. I was in Indiana. I, I was we we mm-hmm. were like just getting like Creedence Clearwater Revival in like nineteen eighty. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you gotta realize like what a backwater it was, especially pre internet from a cultural standpoint. We just didn't have the same influences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of my friends who are from out here are maybe like two years older than me, but will always say like, you're so young, you missed this. But it's like, no, I, we're almost the same age. I missed this because I was in the Midwest, right? Like we just didn't get this stuff. Right. Um, like, yeah, particularly, I guess, Riot Girl, but all of these other sort of ancillary subgenres of music as well. Um, and so, yeah, so it, like hippie was also the thing that I felt drawn to. And part there were also like these, music festivals i went to this festival called bonnaroo oh, yeah. i don't know if you oh, yeah in tennessee yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i have yeah. not been but i know it i don't know i don't even know if i ever liked this kind of music like the string cheese incident <laughs> like loopy loop kind of stuff but uh-huh. i just was like looking for like something outside of my like little like jewish enclave world and sure. sort of went there and then there was a connection to this mu- to music from the 60s too i think which was like better than the string cheese incident and so which is which, which I... is a bolder band i should say they are oh, from really? yes <laughs> of course <laughs> uh, right that makes a lot of and, sense and by the way i never got a handle on it do we know what the string cheese incident is in reference to like what was the string cheese incident i don't want to know yeah that is, <laughs> that is the limits of my curiosity. I don't, I don't want to know what the string cheese incident was. Um, but yeah, so I kind of like, I think that was kind of like my, my like moves out of um, this like, yeah, because I just, I signed up for a dorm. I, somehow, I don't know how the whole dorm was Jewish. And it didn't say that anywhere. And it just like things like that kept happening. I signed up to go abroad to Spain, thought I was like getting away and my whole program was Jewish. I kind of kept kept getting stuck in this like world that had been pre curated for me. And so I felt like I was like making choices, but kept ending up in this Jewish world. And then, yeah, I think this kind of hippie stuff was kind of my way out of it. But I was never I don't know, like I didn't like that music. I have never been good at smoking weed like weed is not a good has just never been a good drug for me um i get weird and quiet and like i don't know um and so then i mean i think i actually sort of found my people a little bit more as an english major and just like really delving into theory and talking about social constructs and taking creative writing classes and starting to like yeah, write stories and connect with people that way. Um, and that was where I think I found sort of like a, a version of myself that made sense. That was in graduate school? No, and like toward the end of college, uh-huh. you know, because like the hippie stuff wasn't really sticking, I think. Like I was kind of dabbling in that, but it just wasn't ever really, I think, my my scene um but then yeah toward the end of college i started um yeah finding it in sort of this like english major and artist community started going to art parties to um 
there was like a little little world of like creative writing kids and art kids. Yeah, I get that. I felt like a I felt like I'd similarly like arrived somewhere where I finally finally found my people when I got to graduate school and was in a creative writing workshop. It's just like that feeling of looking around the table, like the little circle of desks or whatever, and just feeling like you were, uh, I don't know. It's just like, oh, you too. It felt like that, like a recognition mm, and a release. Yeah. Where did you go? Uh, USC. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, I, but it was just yeah. nice. It's just nice to be around people who are on that same strange track. It's, it's pretty specialized when you think about it. Like there's not that many hardcore book people in the world. It's true. And I think there's so much generosity in those environments too, where I think I found people who were so invested in seeing each other so deeply and who kind of recognized how, I mean, this is contradicting the beginning of our conversation maybe, but like, just how sort of special each individual person is, like how much is there with, um, which I mean, you must think too, even though you don't believe in a self because you are like putting a lot of time into talking <laughs> to writers all the time. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that level of generosity um, and recognition was so amazing to me that like each, you know, that we were reading each other's work and so just invested in, um, yeah, seeing who each other were. Yeah. I think, I think that rings a bell for me because it's, uh, it's such a nice way to get to know a person, even if it's, even if it's fiction, you know, and which most of the time I think in those workshops, it was, uh, even if it's something that's like totally far afield from a person's actual lived experience, uh, mm. or it's very layered, it's still deeply personal, <laughs> uh, one way or the other. And, uh, I think it's unique. It's a unique way to interact, especially as you're just getting to know people. It's like an accelerated like an accelerated schedule or something and it requires a kind of openness and tolerance which i you know having had a lot of these conversations i know that it's not always the case in workshops that people are super open and tolerant um there are workshops where people can feel shut down and you know um mistreated but that was never the case for me like i always felt like it was a cool environment and it did something to people right away that made uh, dialogue easier, like it opened people up. Yeah, I think that there still is just a special connection that I have with people that I was in workshops with um, that's different than other kinds of friendships I have. Did you know you wanted to be a writer from a young age? I don't know. I... I mean, I think that I always loved reading. I think I wanted to be an artist as a young kid, but like a lot of kids do. I I always wrote like in journals and things, but I don't think I would have sort of had, I think it took me a long time to sort of have the bravery to say I want to be a writer. So when did you say it? I don't know if I even did. I applied for MFA programs and just took, you know, like took that kind of shot in the dark. But and then 
you know, I guess deciding to actually go and do that was a way of like saying that I wanted to be a writer. Um, but I took workshops in college and would keep dropping out because the idea of writing and sharing work with anyone was way too scary. Um, and then finally I took a workshop in my very last semester. Did you, uh, did you take a workshop with Lori Moore at what university of Wisconsin? No, I think you had to be pretty advanced in, um, in the fiction track or whatever to take a workshop with her. Um, and I, yeah, I didn't have the courage to take a class until my very last semester. So I took an intro class with, um, they have a really great fellowship program for emerging writers there. And so it's like a different group of people every year who, um, come to campus and teach one class, but are mostly being supported to finish their first books. So one of those people was my teacher. Okay. And that was the, the light went on then, Like you were like, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I think I felt, I mean, I think that he was really helpful and really, like, I don't know, sort of, like, acknowledging, like, you know, you have something here and there's, like, a path that you can follow, you know, which was not something that I really knew. Um, and he was actually just this guy from Indiana, and so it's, I don't know. Just another fucking guy from Indiana. Just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we, can we say his name or is it better if we don't? I don't know why. It uh, yeah. I mean, his name is Josh Bell. He's a poet. Okay. And he helped, but I, I, but I haven't, I... I haven't been in touch with him like since then, you know, I just like, I do think though, th like looking back and thinking about college that he was like pretty instrumental in like, I don't know, being the first person I met who was like writers are people. And also like, I see you and I see that you want to do this and that you can. Well, that's what I was just going to talk about is the enormous impact that somebody can have on you. Often a teacher, I've heard it a million times, you know, on this, in these conversations about how a single teacher said something nice, probably quickly. And that, you know, the person still remembers it to this day and it was pivotal, you know, it, yeah. even if it was just like, Oh, it made it seem possible to me or, you know, no one had ever told me I was good at anything before. You know, that was the thing. Sometimes we need other people. Often, I think we need other people to tell us what we're good at. <laughs> Otherwise, we just have no idea. You know, you need that kind of feedback in order to I maybe set a course or have confidence or both. But uh, that was the case for me. I can remember my seventh grade teacher telling me that. Uh, I had a lot of teachers, not, you know, not a ton, but I had multiple teachers through my schooling tell me that. I had my parents tell me that. Mm. I mean, I, I was like, okay, then that's what I'll do. You know, like I was, I was grabbing at straws otherwise, you know, yeah. I don't know what I would have done otherwise. I didn't have any bright ideas on my own. Yeah. I had teachers say it, but it still seemed like a fake thing. Like they don't like, I don't know, like, how do you become a writer that's like becoming a unicorn or a fairy? You know, like it just didn't, if you don't know writers, I think it's, it seems very fantastical. Um, the idea that you could do that. So I think it was like someone, it was helpful to sort of have someone who was a writer. And I was like, you know, he had like one poetry book coming out and I just was like, so amazed. I'd never met anyone who had a book before. Um, 
but he also is just this guy who sat and talked to us and like smoked cigarettes with us after class. Right, yeah. right, right. You're just like, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I think, too, I remember back in graduate school, uh, like, hanging around with older writers. Like, I took classes with Hubert Selby Jr., and I was just in awe. I was like, oh, my God, he did this, like, his whole life. Like, he's old, and he did this, and this is his entire existence and he made it. Do you know what I'm saying? It was like that, like somebody who had kind of run the whole gauntlet basically. Um, and to be sitting there with him, like I remember feeling really wowed by that. And what's funny is that I hadn't read Hubert Selby Jr. I'd seen like Requiem for a Dream. But at that point I was just like, I was just like wowed to be near him. You know what I'm saying? Like I was like being near a unicorn or something. And uh, yeah, to meet somebody whose book had been made into a movie, like a good movie, you know, it was just like, mm-hmm. I don't know. At that time in my life, it meant a lot. And it like made it, maybe the most meaningful thing was that it made it seem possible that you could make a life doing this. Um, and, you know, it's still debatable whether you can, but he did it. You know, he found a way. It was hard. It was messy. It wasn't perfect, but he ran the gauntlet, you know, and that's, that's powerful in its own right. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I guess making a life and making a living are different things to me. Sure. You know? And so like you can make a life doing it, right? Like keeping yourself alive and writing a book is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think, I don't know about you. I had like a, like, I'm a very slow learner. Like I'm not somebody who's like, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm the guy who's sharp and ahead of the curve and like getting it early and sort of leading the way I'm stumbling. Like it's just messy with me. And I remember having like such an antiquated understanding of like what being a writer was. And like I had this idea of publishing being like 19, like 22 or something like I was like so yeah you get to write books and they pay you and you get to go live over the all over the world (laughs) and you know like and Mm. I I was thinking I was seeing it through the lens of like earlier generations who were writing in a time when they weren't competing with like computers and the internet and television and film and you know I don't know I just I could have been a lot savvier on that front I was kind of dopey in that way yeah, I think because my first example was this guy who was like always oh, like just kind of like schlubby and wearing like a white Hanes t-shirt <laughs> and you know there for a year but then said he was going to go work construction over the summer. Like it seemed kind of unglamorous, but there was still a glamour in that to me. Yeah. Um where it's like, yeah, like I can just like move around everywhere and keep doing it. And now I'm like I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay where I am. Um, yeah. I, you know, but, um, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think that like that scrappiness was always still part of, part of it for me. And now I would like it to be a little less scrappy. It'd be nice. But... It'd be nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there should be in college, especially graduates, you know, graduate writing programs, there should be much better classes on the business of publishing, at least than I had access to. Um, the problem is keeping them current, I think, because things change, obviously. You know, we had classes along these lines, I think, or at least some instruction, but it was taught by people who hadn't really been out 
you know, trying to find an agent in like 40 years, <laughs> you know, like, like you go to their office with yeah. a, your portfolio. Yeah. And you have your, you have a martini yeah. at lunch and, you know, in <laughs> midtown and it's like, no, you don't, you know? <laughs> so it's like, it's hard to teach. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to fail to acknowledge that, but I feel like that part of it in these, in these graduate programs, you know, they don't really do much with, it's like a lot of aesthetic training and, you know, the doing of the writing and then they sort of just cut you loose. Yeah, I think it depends. I think that there are those programs like Iowa and Michigan that are very connected to publishing. Um, I went to CalArts for my MFA um, where, I mean, not only is there not a conversation about publishing, at least when I was there, but it just felt like if you were if you were even making your work narrative, you were like somehow selling out or you were like a modernist, which was like a word that got thrown around as an insult a lot. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, like your work should be like in a gallery or something. Um, I don't know. And so, I mean, I actually think that, that, yeah, it was like a writing program that almost steered us away from actually publishing. I don't know if I should say that on the air, but um, it sounds like my it sounds like my undergrad it sounds like my undergraduate education. Like I went to uh, film school at Boulder, and it was like fine art film. I didn't know this when I enrolled. I thought I was going to like learn how to make like Hollywood movies, but it was more like art film that to be like the, the ideal end point would be to like have your collection bought by MoMA, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Which is like amazing and cool, but also like it also makes sense for there to be some kind of training ground for work that's going to make like that can make its way into the world in a bigger way. And so much of the Academy, I think, um, really like turns up its nose at that at what making work that's going to that's going to find a big audience work yeah um making work that's perceived as commercial or commercially viable but do you think that's a bad education like i have i have in the like in thinking about it through the years i've sometimes been like you know what i'm really grateful actually that i got that kind of film school training yeah um sense i think i am also grateful for having gone to art school and i think like i think like thinking so expansively about what writing could be um and how aesthetics shape meaning um has probably shaped me more than I want to admit even, right? Like I do think that that is just like inherent within me now and that education was really important. I don't know. I guess I just, um, I do think that there is an elitism to it too. And that maybe like a little bit of both, um, would be wouldn't be a bad thing yeah i get that i think like yeah i think i agree i mean i was just going to say that like maybe the elitism sometimes it's just that snotty elitism of the academy you know it just kind of feels like it's born of some sort of like 
I don't know, like incestuous seeming process, you know, just like being too long in the same stuffy tower or something, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking about high art. But it's also like, I think sometimes that sense of elitism is an earned sense of elitism because it's the people who are like the most hardcore art nerds. They love it the most. Um, Mm -hmm. But then, you know what? There are people who love comic books the most in the comic book movies. So, you know, you can start to split hairs, but I guess I just have like some sympathy and affinity for the the people who are like holding the line and just have that like intense like love i think we need those people they perform a very necessary function in like the creative ecosystem um and i think a place like cal arts um which is pushing you to think expansively about what writing can be and do we desperately need those places like how else Mm -hmm. do you make it new how else do like, Mm -hmm. like good experiments happen you know i mean I know they can be self-generated or whatever, but we need those kinds of laboratories, I would argue. Yeah, yeah. I think so, too. I think I'm just also agreeing with your point about maybe um, some awareness of, like, the world outside of the academy being sort of important. Because I think that those people who love it the most um, also are in this incredibly privileged position in the ivory tower often um and there are a bunch of people who are sort of yeah like being loosed from these academies every year into the world um or these institutions every year into the world and i think just like some i think it's important to have awareness of like the multiple paths that um they might take to to use this education and this knowledge and um I don't know, because I think I think that even people who do want to be commercial filmmakers, like it's a good thing for them to have this um, to have a broad knowledge of experimental film um, and art in general. Well, and vice vice versa, like I Stan Brackage was like the the um, the god of like art filmmaking. And he was at Boulder when I was there and like the whole or one of the whole or or central parts of the lore around him was that he would go to like literally every movie that came out. Mm. Like he would go see like hot shots part deux with like Charlie Sheen, you know, the kind of, he would do the kind of stuff that like you wouldn't expect from somebody who made the kinds of films that he made. So I think it should be a, a, it should flow both ways, you know, like the commercial artist needs the art films and the art films needs to be aware of what the genre or the commercial filmmakers are doing. Like they can feed each other. They should, right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know if the art filmmaker needs to be aware of the commercial genres. Though maybe, I mean, because it's like, it's fun to play with genre. And to me, it's fun to take like pop concepts and bring them into art and like generic concepts and bring them into art. But I mean, I just, I like that piece of information. Like I like that Stan Brackage is going to see Hot Shots part two or like whatever <laughs> comes into the theater. And that like I don't know that like film is that in cinema is that interesting to him that he'll just go see any of it. He loves the movies. He loved the yeah. movies. You know, he loved the and I think the theater experience in particular, which I totally love and like mourn is just that going into that dark theater and having like mm-hmm. dream time. You know, even if it's something silly or, you know, a throwaway, like whatever you Mm -hmm. want to call it. Like, I think even that can be valuable and like just a break from the harshness of the real. But 
you know, as we're talking about these things, I can't help but think about what I think might be the distinguishing characteristic or one of the distinguishing characteristics of your collection, which is the way that it, uh, the way that it melds like realistic, uh, fiction with magical realism and like really almost experimental fiction and how it all holds together. Uh, I was extremely impressed with that. I don't see that very often. Usually when there's a, a story collection that comes out and really holds together, it seems to be working in one mode, but you really managed to do uh, like a lot of different things in this collection without losing that sense of cohesion. Thank you. How did you do it? And <laughs> well, first of all, how did you do it? And like, did you like, what was your sense of, the fact that you were doing it as it was happening, because like, did you get concerned that it wouldn't stick? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, I think that when this is described to me, cause it has been, I, um, feel like it should have occurred to me more. I don't know. Um, I will say for one that like my writing has been described as magical realism a lot, like since back in these workshops that we're talking about, um, and I always have kind of like pushed against that because I'm like, no, I just experienced the world as enchanted. Like, this is just how I experience things. Um, but now it actually says magical realism on, on the, like, the genres with the ISBN number or whatever. Oh. Um, and so I have to, so I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess it's officially magical realism. Um, but I don't know. I think that I, I did intentionally start it with this very poppy sort of Valley Girl voice and bringing in a lot of pop culture. And I think and there is sort of like a lot of this like transform. I think I experience a lot of the magical stuff as like metaphor, too. Um, and but it's cool that it's like not being read that way, I guess. Um, and then I think I did start to break away from that, but I don't know. I think that there were just some stories that didn't want to be written that way. Um, like it didn't, I think the trees story did really have this sense. I mean, I assume that's like a magical, magically real story. I would, magical. I would, I would characterize it that way. Yeah. I mean, for lack of a better um, term. I did one of my book events with Lydia Yuknovich, who I had never met before. And she was like, I don't think it's magically real. I think it's completely realistic. And yeah. I really <laughs> loved her for that. <laughs> she's so fun. I've, I've had her on the show multiple times. And like, she's so good to talk to. Like, I just feel like when I'm with her, yeah. like her talking to her, that I'm like, it's like I'm in the presence of like some sort of... Uh, magician or something well, i don't even know what the word is you know what i'm getting at there's something kind of magic about her yeah she's incredible and wise and she'll go so deep and she's just really not afraid to say things that might feel like very out there and i think that that sort of like loosens that up in whoever she's talking to too she's just she's incredible to talk to or did for me i felt like she got things out of me in our conversation in our uh, my book event that i was surprised that i said um but 
Um, yeah, so she's cool, but she's like, no, that story's totally realistic. Um, <laughs> but, and like, just for listeners who may not have read the collection, it's a story where people become trees. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that one just sort of had to be, um, told in a different kind of voice. I don't know if I'm answering your question at all. No, I mean, I think like it, so much of this stuff is kind of mysterious, probably in its point of Genesis. Like, why do we write what we write? Who knows? You know, what comes yeah. out of us? Um, or like, was there a particular one that surprised you or something? Dream Palace. Yeah. I, I felt like there was something psychedelic about it. And I found myself wondering, am I projecting onto this thing, like my own sensibility or curiosities? Or was this like a very psychedelic story about you going out to the desert and having some sort of vision quest. Yeah. So, um, that story, I don't remember really like why I decided to write it. And I also did not think it was going to be part of the book. I sent it to my agent, like right before we went out on submission and was like, is it crazy to think like, I was really hesitating to send it to her and I did. And I was like, is it crazy to think that maybe this is part of the book? And she's like, Oh no, it like definitely is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess those questions did come up, right? Like I wrote that. I don't know why. And then I really questioned whether it was part of the book and it was helpful to have someone else confirm that. But um, where the story came from is so I keep a I actually am I I'm very like off and on with it. But for probably about a decade, I have kept a dream journal. Um, and so I have all of this like really amazing material that feels like it comes from a totally different world and a totally different person. Um, because it's just my dreams all written in present tense. Like when I'm like in that state between sleeping and waking. Um, and so that story is actually just like some of my dreams strung together and, then the dream palace was this place that I saw in Tucson. And actually this kind of goes back to this, like this fantasy that I have of like a, like a feminine sexuality free of like patriarchy and the male gaze, um, which is that there was this like all silver tinselly building that said dream palace on the outside and these amazing letters. And I felt so drawn to it. And of course realized also that it was a strip club. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I did just pass it on, you know, I think it was like right on highway 10 or something, or I don't know. On, I was there for a conference. It might've been on a different street. Um, and so I sort of like used that to sort of contain this space. And I guess I also, I think I also sort of picked it up from this line in gossip, which gossip is the one story in the collection that um, was written like a very long time ago before all the Sarah's and it doesn't like really meaningfully have a Sarah in it. Um, but I, I ended up bringing it in and there's this part in it where one of the characters says something about like there being brothels or dungeons or whatever that men can visit on their lunch breaks, but there's no like space um, for like female sexual fantasy. And so I kind of just wanted to create that space 
within the space that I saw on the side of the highway that I felt so drawn to, but knew that I like wouldn't probably enjoy inside um, using images from my dream journal. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a comprehensive answer that I don't necessarily think I was anticipating, but uh, it makes, it make sense. Cause it is like, I think it's the wildest story in the collection. Is that fair? I mean, it's one of them anyway. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's one that's like the, like billions of years in the future where like bacteria and plastic are having sex and stuff, you know? Oh so, yeah. That's true. Like, that's, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but I, yeah, maybe. Well, it all holds together and it's a really smart, beautifully written, sometimes funny, moving. It's everything you want. And uh, it's a very impressive debut. And I loved reading it. I told you I read it on my summer break uh, and I kind of tore through it. And, you know, I'm a Brad. I'm not a Sarah. And I found it relatable in ways that maybe surprised me a little bit, but that's just a credit to you, you know, like there's some real deep human truth in it. Um, and it took me places I wasn't expecting, which I always appreciate in any book I read. So thank you for that. And I appreciate the time uh, talking with you. This has been really fun. Thank you, Brad. It's been really fun talking to you too. All right, you guys, there you have it. That is Sam Cohen. Her debut story collection, Sarah Land, is available now from Grand Central Publishing. You can find uh, Sam on Instagram at Sammy Terrestrial. Again, her story collection is called Sarah Land, available now where you get books. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All 700 and some odd episodes of this show are available to you, the listener, free of charge. The entire archive is there for you, for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this show, if you, if you listen regularly and get something from it, I hope you'll consider supporting the show over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod for as little as $1 a month you can support this show there are different tiers different levels of support uh, as you go up the chain you can get you can get stuff like a coffee mug a sticker a t-shirt a tote bag a book club subscription I will write you a postcard I will wish you a happy birthday patreon.com slash other PPL pod if you have something you need to say to me you can write to me the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the show's YouTube channel. The entire archive is on YouTube. You can listen there. Go smash the subscribe button, as the kids like to say. The Other People podcast has its own official app. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy app. It is free. The app is free. Go get the app. It's a great way to listen. It's available wherever apps are available. Next week on the program, I'm going to be talking with Katie Crouch. I think I'm going to be talking with Katie Crouch. That's the plan. We'll see how it all shakes out. But I just want you to know that, that I'm planning to have Katie Crouch on the next episode. Her new novel, Embassy Wife, is available. And it is superb. So, excited for that. 
Thank you. 